Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. We are been started about four weeks ago, I think, in 1 Samuel, and that's where we're at tonight, 1 Samuel 3. There was a famous phrase in the Protestant Reformation, and uh, the phrase went like this. It said, after darkness, light. There's three words, after darkness, light. And why did they say that? Well, for years, I'm talking about the Protestant Reformation, took place in the 1500s, 1600s, and so on. For years, the Catholic Church had kept the world in, as, as best they could in spiritual darkness by hiding the truth of the Word of God from people. And in the, in the Reformation, the doctrine of justification by faith came to the forefront once again. People had been taught by the Catholic Church to you know, salvation by works, to buy the indulgences that would help you get to out of purgatory into heaven and so on. And that came back to the forefront again, justification by faith faith and the scriptures came to the forefront in a strong way and uh and and what uh, the catholic church had forbidden lay people to read the scriptures and yet now during this time uh, the language of uh, the scriptures were being translated into the language of the common people and so anybody could read the scriptures now and that was a tremendous thing that happened the scriptures were made accessible to people to the common man common woman common person and i think it was uh Tyndall had said long before this, it's going to be, he said, I'm going to translate the scriptures, and one day even a plowboy is going to be able to read them. And so, and that's what happened. They were made accessible to people, and the word of God began to shine brightly in the world at that time. And that's similar to what happened in, Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 3. There's a long period of, of spiritual darkness that took place in Israel during the time of the judges. And we're still in that time of the judges, by the way, in 1 Samuel 3. And then the light of divine revelation begins to take hold again and to shine once more. As God raised up men like Calvin and Luther in the Reformation time, so he will also raise up in 1 Samuel 3 a prophet, Samuel, who will be his spokesman for the people and give the revelation of God to the people. So tonight we're going to witness the changing of the guard from uh, the scarcity of God's word under Eli to the return of God's word under Samuel. Let's start with the scarcity of divine revelation in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. The scarcity of divine revelation. It says there, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. It happened at that time Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim, and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Sam, Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now we found out last week that word translated boy in verse 1, which we saw also in chapter 2, can range anywhere in the Hebrew from, it can mean an infant, it can mean a teenager, it can mean even a young man of marriageable age. We saw, that, we saw in chapter 2 Samuel's growing up as a young boy and he's, and he's growing in the Lord. Now I think in chapter 3 we have someone who has reached the point of being a teenager or maybe even a young man. Um, I say that because he's going to be given a heavy responsibility in chapter 3, Samuel is, and a boy cannot take on that responsibility. Now, Josephus, the historian, said that his take on what age Samuel was in chapter 3 is that he was 12 years old. There's nothing to indicate that anywhere at all. I don't know where he came up with that at. But because of the nature of the responsibility that Samuel's going to give, be given, I think it's safe to assume that he's a teenager, maybe an older teenager, maybe approaching young manhood at this time. And as usual, he's ministering. Didn't Samuel do that in chapter 2? He's ministering under Eli's supervision. 
And uh, he's, as if you just joined us tonight for the first time in 1 Samuel, he's been doing this, ministering under Eli's supervision. And while chapter 2 presented a contrast between Eli's, or, or Eli's sons and Samuel, the wickedness of Eli's sons versus the godliness of Samuel, chapter 3, in addition to his call as a prophet, it presents a contrast between Eli and, or rather Samuel and Eli himself. Samuel and Eli himself. And very, verse 1 is very telling. It says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Uh, the fact of the matter is, Eli, the teacher of Samuel, is receiving no revelation from God at this time. There is an absence of divine revelation, which means there's an absence of the word of God during the time of Eli. The Lord is virtually silent in this time, not saying very much at all. Not, revelation is not coming coming out like it, like it may, maybe had been in the past or will in the future. Now remember, the scriptures have not been completed at this time. The Old Testament is still being written. The New Testament has not even begun to be written yet. And so we have this time of revelation that should be given still. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say this, or verse 1 rather, 1-1, one, one, Long ago at many times and in many places God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And that's what he did. He spoke by the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, normally God would reveal his word to the prophets through some kind of vision. And that's what they did. And so it was a time, the Old Testament was, of divine revelation, direct revelation, given from God to a prophet. So why does verse 1 say uh, that word from the Lord was rare in those days, visions were infrequent? Well, again, we must keep in mind that this is the time period we're in. It's a time of the judges. Um the infamous time of the judges, I should say. It's a time that things are really dark in history. Spiritual darkness pervades the land of Israel. God had all but stopped speaking to his people in this time. Now, God was long-suffering with the people, as we saw when we studied Judges, and he consistently intervened in the life of, in the nation of Israel as they cried out to God, as they would go into sin and cry out to God for help, and he would help them anyway in spite of themselves because he's a gracious God. But you have this extremely limited time of revelation that's coming from God to, to prophets. You remember what happened in Judges, right? The people of God turned their backs on God. They rebelled against God. They disobeyed God. They committed idolatry. It was just unbelievable. And so the voice of God grows fainter and fainter through that time period until it's almost extinguished. Until verse 1 of chapter 3 says the, Lord, the word of, from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. When Moses led Israel, God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend, it says in Numbers. And then later on, Joshua takes over. In Joshua chapter 1 verse 1, it says there, And the Lord spoke to Joshua. And he continued to speak to Joshua throughout the, the time of Joshua's life as he led Israel into the land of Canaan. God is speaking to Joshua. But then you have this tragedy take place in Judges. This wholesale, all-out disobedience to God on a regular basis, idolatry left and right, all kinds of evil. And yet in spite of that, the Lord continues to show his grace by delivering his people from their enemies, even though they treat God as if he's their enemy on a regular basis. But over time, the Lord began to give less and less revelation to the people of Israel. It happened. And I think if you go through Judges, if I'm right about this, I think there's only two prophets mentioned in the book of Judges altogether. There's the prophetess Deborah in chapter 4, and there's, there's an unnamed prophet in chapter 6 who gives a very short message and then leaves the scene, and that's the end of it. 
And then the angel of the Lord comes in and takes over and, and communicates with some judges, but that's the end of the prophets. And so you have uh, this rarity of God's revelation. The Lord did work through the judges. Yes, he did. But you think about the judges. They weren't exactly the most spiritual of all people, right? We think back as we study the judges, how those people were, by and large, not very spiritual. And the priesthood was corrupt in this time of the judges. The Levites were totally corrupt, as we saw in Judges 17 to 21, as we saw that the leadership of Israel was in total shambles. We Remember the godless Levites in Judges 17 to 21 and all they did? So all you had to do is look, look that far to find out what was going on in the leadership of Israel. So prophetic revelation became weaker and weaker during this time period. Now think about this. Why should the Lord continue to speak to his people if they continue to refuse to listen to him? He speaks and he speaks and he speaks and they don't listen and they refuse to hear what he has to say and they disobey what he says. I don't know about you, but if you have children like that, after a while you might think, oh, forget it. I'm not even going to talk to you anymore. Or anybody, maybe somebody at work, you're telling them some directions, they won't listen to you, and after a while you give up. This is what the Lord did. He quit giving revelation like he had done in the past. And you get to the, down to the time of Eli, who's a priest and a judge of Israel, and the Lord seems to not be speaking to him at all. It's, even, it's strange that to me, even in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, that the people that are introduced first are not, is not Eli, but it's Eli's sons who are introduced. And then later on, Eli is. But God is not speaking to Eli, who's the senior priest of Israel at this time. He does use an unnamed man of God in chapter 2, verse 27. We saw it last week. This man of God comes to Eli with a, a message for him, and it's not a message of salvation. It's a message of condemnation for the house of Eli. Eli's house is going to be condemned for their evil because his sons had done evil, as we saw in chapter 2. And so you have a spiritually... Dark time in, in the history of the nation of Israel. Word, it says, from the Lord was rare in those days. Oh, there was no lack of religious activity. Believe me, that was taking place. There was priests. There was Levites. There were sacrifices. There were offerings. We saw that in chapter 2. You have all these things taking place, all this religiosity, but there's no word from God. It's not being heard in those days. It's very rare, it says. Now, the word rare has to do with something that is precious or something that is valuable or something that is of great worth. Now, we know the Word of God is of tremendous value to us, right? It's infinitely valuable to us and of great worth. We hold to the Word of God dearly. The Bible says the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It says in Psalm 119.72, the psalmist said, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver. Think about that for a minute. Your estimate of the word of God is, is that it's greater to you than thousands of gold and silver. And that's what he said. So you can't place a monetary value on the scriptures. Job said in Job 23.12, rather, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. More than the very food I need to eat to stay alive, I've treasured the word of God even greater than that. Can you say that? The word of God is precious, but a rare jewel is also a precious jewel. And in the, in the, in the time of, of, of ju the judges, the revelation of a word from God was seldom heard. It wasn't heard very often at all. Visions were infrequent, it says in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, visions, when it says visions, that was a divine message that was communicated to the prophets by God, directly to God, from God. And then the prophet would take that message and communicate it to others. 
Well, those prophetic visions were rare in those days. In fact, prophets were rare in those days, as we saw already. What, what happened here? This is the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. When a nation denies, or when God denies access to the word of God to a nation, that nation is under his judgment. And God had denied the access to his word in this time to Israel. They're under his judgment. Amos prophesied of a time like this in Amos 8, 11, and 12. Later on, Amos will say, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of, for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. He says, I'm going to send a famine, a spiritual famine on the land. I'm not, I'm not going to let you hear my words. He goes on to say in Amos, People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they will not find it. They're going to go trying to find the word of the Lord, and they will not find it, it says. Now, America as a nation has been tremendously blessed by God, uh, spiritually. There's Bibles everywhere. It just, you can go to Walmart and buy a Bible. You can go anywhere and get the scriptures. You, you can hear preaching 24 hours a day if you want to on CDs and the computer and MP3s and all that. You can listen, to, and we've got people in here that I think listen to preaching 24 hours a day, if I'm not mistaken, from what, I, from what I keep hearing. You have that opportunity. But that may not be the case one day, the way the nation's heading spiritually. may not be able to have that opportunity one day because we're right now neglecting the Word of God. Many people are. They're disobeying the Word of God in many ways. And by the way, the churches of our nation are not helping any at all with the situation because instead of preaching the Word of God from their pulpits... They are substituting that for something less than the Word of God or something cheaper than that. And so they're not helping matters at all. You know what, our, what we want our church to be known for here? We're not looking for programs and entertainment and all this stuff, flashy people and dynamic speakers. We don't have... <laughs> Mike's a dynamic speaker. Um, what we want here is for the Word of God to be central. That's what we want. We want the Word of God to be central here, whether it's through the preaching of the Word, teaching of the Word, through home Bible studies that we have, through one-on-one -on -one discipleship, through witnessing to people. That's what we want the Word of God to be central. We call it the Grace Bible Church of Tampa, right? That's why we called it that, because we want the Word of God to be central. We're extremely blessed to have this Word of God in our possession, but be careful that you don't neglect this invaluable possession that we have, as they did in that time period, don't neglect it. Now, people would say here, well, I'm not going to neglect it. Well, let me ask you this question. Do you read your Bible? Do you read your Bible on a daily basis? Or does it sit around somewhere like on a shelf or a dresser like a museum piece? Do you actually partake of the Word of God every day? Do you come faithfully to hear the Word of God preached? Or is it to you a take-it-or-leave-it basis? Well, today I don't feel like hearing the Word of God, or I don't feel like going to church. You wouldn't say you wouldn't feel like hearing the Word of God. You would just say, I don't feel like going. I think I'll stay home and go to the beach or somewhere. The Word of God can be rare to us if we don't avail ourselves of it. If we don't partake of it, it can be rare to us. The way some people ignore the Word of God, they might as well have lived in the time of Eli because they don't want anything to do with it or seem not to, not to uh, want much to do with it at all. But we must partake of the revelation of God if we're going to grow in Christ. There's no other way around it. If you're not partaking of the revelation of the Word of God, and spending time with it, you're not going to grow as a believer. That's, that's just how it is. Now, Proverbs 29, 18 says this. 
where there is no vision, I'm quoting the King James, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is, you ever heard that verse before? Maybe many times? Where there's no vision, the people perish. I used to hear people, pastors quote this verse. It was always during a, 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 prog- a church building program. They wanted to get more money or during a push to get more people in the church. And so they would say, you know, where there is no vision, the people perish. We've got to have a vision for our church. We've got to get more people in this church. We've got to let's set goals for our church. And I've been through all this. And, you know, you put the signs up and you're setting goals for 500 people to come to your church or 1,000 people. Or you got the building program with a thermometer on the side of the wall. You know, we've got this much money now. Now we've got this much money and this much money and all that. And they've got Proverbs 29:18 on top. Because you have to have this vision, you know, for the future. But the, the vision here being spoken of in Proverbs 2019 is, is a vision, means the revelation of God. It's a prophetic vision. It's, a, it's the word of God is what he's saying. He's saying, in effect, where there is no vision, where there is no revelation from God, word of God, the people perish. In other words, or better translated, the people will cast off restraint. They'll cast off all restraints and do whatever they want to, like they did in the book of Judges. And by the way, as the pastors during those pushes for more people in their churches and, and push for you know, a bigger church building, had read the rest of the verse and the parallel part of Proverbs 2019, they probably would have had the meaning correct anyway. It says there, the whole verse says this, where there is no revelation from God, the people cast off all restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. The, the parallel part of the verse explains the first part of the verse, talking about the law of God, the word of God. The revelation of God, the word of God, keeps us from ruining our lives, basically, casting off all restraints and from dishonoring God. And so, And by the way, the added bonus there is, is happiness or blessedness. Happy or blessed or blissful is the person who keeps the law as opposed to the one who casts off all restraints. So we have to have the word of God, the vision from God, right? The revelation from God there in order to have it in our possession so we can obey it. And it makes a person happy and blessed and blissful. But no such happiness existed under the judgeship of Eli. Even verses 2 and 3 in 1 Samuel 3 seem to indicate and picture for spiritual darkness in Israel. It's sometime during the early hours, early morning hours here. It happened, it says, verse 2, Eli was lying down in his place. His eyesight had grown dim. He could not see well. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Samuel was lying down in the temple. So it's probably the early morning hours. Everyone is sleeping in the house of God here. And I say it's just early morning, just before dawn, because verse because of verse 3 says the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, Exodus 27, verse 20 says this, You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. And the tent of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall keep it in order from evening to morning. So you keep the light burning all night, evening to morning, before the Lord. And the wording of verse 3 suggests possibly that the lamp had been burning for a good while and had not yet gone out, but maybe it's approaching early morning or dawn at this time. And, and it also says Eli's eyesight was growing dim. He literally had bad vision at this time, but... I think verses 2 and 3, and I'm not trying to spiritualize this, but it kind of, it's interesting to me this all goes together, seem to picture in a way for us what's happening in Israel at this time. It's a time of dim uh, physical vision for Eli. It's a time of dim spiritual vision for Israel. 
Uh, it's, it's nighttime, approaching morning. In the same way, uh, spiritual darkness covered the land, but the dawn of a new day was approaching because Samuel would be called to be a prophet of God. But revelation in that day, in that time, was scarce. Scarcity of divine revelation under Eli. And that brings us to the return of divine revelation in the rest of the chapter, the return of divine revelation. God will return his revelation to people. And that involved three things, this, this return of divine revelation. First of all, it involved the Lord revealing himself to Samuel. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel. That's in verses 4 to 10. It says there, the Lord called Samuel and he said, here am I. And then he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And verse 6 says, the Lord called yet again Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not, did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling for the boy, calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be if he calls you that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Then the Lord came and stood and called out as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. So during the pre-dawn hours of the night, Samuel hears a voice calling out to him, and he replies, here I am. Now, I'm pretty sure, sure he doesn't recognize the voice. He's never heard this voice before. But he assumes, logically, that it's Eli. Who else is in that area except Eli near him? So he runs to Eli, but Eli says, I didn't call you, so he go lie down. He goes and lies down again. The Lord calls his name a second time with similar results. Verse 7 tells us, helps us to understand what's going on here, why Samuel is confused. It says he did not yet know the Lord. He had never had a revelation of God's word. Now, that reminds us of, of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, of the sons of Eli. It says of 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 2, 12, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. Now, we saw in that context because they were worthless individuals because they treated the Lord's offerings with disdain and disgust and and they didn't treat God as holy, we saw in that context that it meant they had no regard for the Lord. They didn't revere the Lord. They, didn't, they actually despised him, as a matter of fact. But on the opposite side of things, chapter 3, verse 7, Samuel, it says of Samuel that he did not yet know the Lord. Now, he was not, Samuel was not a worthless man, young man, as the sons of Eli were. He wasn't that way. Samuel was obedient to the authority placed over him we saw last week. The authority, the authority placed over him was Eli, of all people, who couldn't control his own sons. And yet Samuel listened to Eli and, and was obedient to his authority. Samuel treated the things of God as holy, uh, unlike the sons of Eli. So what does it mean when it says Samuel did not yet know the Lord? And it means it in this sense. He did not have an intimate relationship, relationship with God. <clears throat> He had not yet experienced the things of the Lord. He had never received a word from God. He's young. He was not a prophet yet. He was not used to getting direct revelation from God. He didn't know all that. This is all a brand new experience for Samuel. This is the first time he's encountered anything like this. He doesn't even know what's going on. So in verse 8, Samuel is called for a third time. And this time, Eli senses something different. He senses that God may be calling Samuel. 
And so he tells him that. I think Eli had enough understanding of God, by the way, being the senior priest. He knew something about God. He didn't respond to God properly usually, but he knew something about God. I think he had enough understanding of this, of God, and his reaction in chapter 4 to the, um, to the ark of God being taken to know that um, maybe God is calling Samuel. Maybe that's what's happening here. So he advises Samuel to lie down again. If the boy should call out again, say this, Samuel, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Now, I believe that's the best advice Eli has ever given to anybody, his sons or Samuel or anybody else or anybody in Israel. I think that's the best advice he gave to anybody. With all of his failings, Eli gives good counsel to Samuel and good direction. And I think that's the best advice I could give you. Or I could even take myself. This should be our attitude towards the Lord and towards his word. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Now, wouldn't that be a great prayer to pray every time you sat down to read your scripture, to read your, your Bible? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Wouldn't that be a great prayer to pray every time you sat down to hear a message preached from the Bible? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's, that's, there's so many things involved in that statement if you think about it. That statement, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. The believer who takes that approach is showing his, he's got a desire to hear the word of God. He's got a desire to obey the word of God. He wants, he knows the authority behind the word of God is the Lord. He knows that. The, the Lord is the one who inspired his word, who gave his word graciously to us. He understands that person that would pray a prayer like that. He gave it to us. It reveals an attitude of humility uh, that a person would have that you would sit before the Lord and hear him like Mary did, who sat before the Lord and heard his word, and that you would be his servant. You had this attitude of, I'm the servant of the Lord. I'm going to listen to what he says, and I'm going to do what he says. This is this attitude of being willing to obey what the Lord is saying. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What a great, thing to, what a great thought to have and a great thing to, to meditate on, that, that phrase. And that was to be Samuel's reply. Well, in verse 10, there's another factor added in the calling of Samuel. It says this, the Lord came and stood and called out. Now, this is a special moment in Israel's history right here, what's taking place. For years, direct revelation was gone by the wayside, very limited. But now the man that God is bringing to the forefront, Samuel, hears him speak, but also there's this personal appearance of the Lord. Now, we don't know what Samuel saw or didn't see. It doesn't say. We do know the Lord appeared somehow, not like the 900-foot Jesus that Oral Roberts allegedly saw. We know he appeared here in the Scripture to Samuel somehow. And the Lord calls his name twice now, Samuel, Samuel. And the Lord and Samuel replies, speak for your servant is listening. Now, I've often wondered to myself, wait a minute. You know, Samuel is known for, if, we, if he's known for one thing, it's this. His obedience to authority in doing what Eli said, right? And Eli said, say this, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And Samuel says, speak, for your servant is listening. Did something, is something missing there? He didn't say Lord there. And I've often been puzzled by that. Why didn't he say Lord? seems strange to me. And some people say, well, it's just the oversight. He didn't forgot about it or he didn't think about it. Does it really matter anyway? He said basically the essence of the statement. And that may be true, but Samuel was used to doing what Eli said exactly. And I, I just wonder, this is my take on this, maybe this is the first time that Samuel's encountered the Lord, maybe because of his extreme fear of God and reverence for God and, and realize, realization that this is the Lord speaking. 
that he's taken back and is even afraid to say the name. I don't know what the reason is, but whatever the reason, for the first time in Samuel's life, the Lord reveals himself to Samuel. This is nothing other than the grace of God on the nation of Israel. People who are undeserving of hearing the word of God are on the verge. They have done nothing to come back to God here. And yet God intervenes in his grace, as he always does, even, and we don't do anything to deserve that. And he, comes, and he comes and he gives a word to Samuel now, and he begins to raise up a prophet. In fact, the Lord is graciously going to give Samuel as the first in a line of prophets to minister under the kings of Israel. There's a second thing involved in this return to divine revelation, and that is it involved the Lord's revealing his message to Samuel, not only himself, but his message to Samuel. That's found in verses 11 to 14. Verse 11 says, The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have not, I've told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever." Now, what's intriguing about this call of Samuel is there seems to, seems to be very little mentioned about the call of Samuel by the Lord. He doesn't say to Samuel, Samuel, I've got your attention now. You know who I am now. I've called you. I'm calling you to be a prophet of the Lord. I want you to go forth and minister in my name to the nation of Israel. He doesn't say any of that. He just unloads this heavy-duty message of condemnation for Samuel to, to reveal to Eli. He unloads it on him. I mean, this message is a barn burner. This is the first prophecy Samuel's ever received, and there's no introduction to this. There's, there's nobody's, you know, anointing Samuel or anything like that. They're just saying, here, Samuel, here's the message. Give to Eli now. It's not smooth. It's not easy. This is his teacher, Eli. This is the man he's respected all his life, even though Eli's out of whack and his sons are crazy and all that. Nevertheless, Samuel's respected Eli. And now he's got to go to his teacher with this very difficult message. This assignment is very difficult. There's nothing easy about this at all or smooth about it. This is not a practice session for prophecy for the school of the prophets or anything. He's not going to seminary and learning how to do something and then go out and do it in the real world. He's doing it now. It's not an easy thing. This is a real thing. Now, Eli already knows the information that Samuel has gotten because he's already been given that information in chapter 2, but Samuel now is going to confirm that a second time. So serious is the offenses that were committed by Eli and his sons that Samuel is going to confirm the word that's already been given uh, to Eli. In fact, it says both ears of everyone who hears are going to tingle. In other words, the revelation of the condemnation on, on Eli's house is going to be so horrible, it's going to be a shocking revelation to people when they hear it. This is a, a condemnation of, a, of the priestly family in Israel, from the, descended from Aaron. You're talking about the top priest in Israel who's being condemned by God. Now, this is something that's going to strike fear in the hearts of people. They're going to say, whoa, what happened here? This is frightening news, and the judgment's going to be complete. It says in verse 12, I'm going to judge him from beginning to end. In other words, I'm going to fulfill all that I said, all that I said, mark it down, about Eli, and the condemnation on Eli is going to happen. It's going to happen. You can count on it. According to verse 13, God says, I'm going to judge his house forever. Now, how, how ironic that the judge of Israel is going to be judged himself. 
for the sins his family committed, which tells us the Lord is no respecter of persons. And every it doesn't matter if you're a citizen of Israel, a normal citizen, or a king, or a prince, or, or a judge, or who you are. God judges people for their sin, and that includes us today. It doesn't matter who you are. He's no respecter of persons. And Eli knew well. He knew well what his sons were doing. Don't, act, don't, don't think he didn't know. It says he knew about their iniquity. He knew full well about their iniquity. And committed iniquity is to, to, to deviate from the way of God, the path that God has lined up. When you commit iniquity, you deviate from that way. You make that path, path perverse. You go your own path. And that's what they did. His sons had done that in chapter 2. And they had brought a curse upon themselves. They had brought a curse upon themselves because they had treated the offerings of God as unholy in an unholy manner. Now, you remember in, Le- in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu had offered strange fire to the Lord, right? And what happened? God, a fire came out and consumed them. God killed them. And he says there about his, about his Levites and priests in Leviticus 10, by those who come near me, that is the priests and Levites come near to worship me, I will be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored. The priests of all people knew about this. They knew that it was a serious matter approaching the Lord and offering offerings to the Lord. But Eli never took it seriously. Eli's sons never took it seriously. And so they would pay the steep price of being condemned by God. And not only that, Eli never rebuked them for their behavior. He didn't rebuke them. You've got this mild rebuke in chapter 2. But he never, he never backed up his words with any disciplinary action. He never removed them from the priesthood because of the evil they were committing. He never did, took any action. He never intervened as he should have. Again, as we said last week, parents, we have responsibility to keep our kids in line. We have this responsibility upon us. Don't neglect that. We're living in a country that has a wrong view of children and a wrong view of child rearing. Children are not a curse, as many think. Children are a blessing to the, from the Lord. But children can become a curse if the parents don't restrain them. If the parents don't keep them aligned, they will become a curse, as it says often in Proverbs. Discipline your children before they defame the name of God, and they dishonor you, and they dishonor themselves, and they bring a curse upon themselves, as the sons of Eli did. Eli failed in this, it says, and the Lord says in verse 14 that, listen to this, their iniquity (coughs) shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offerings forever. Even all the offerings and sacrifices wouldn't do good enough to atone for the sins of Eli's sons. God says, I'm gonna, there's going to be an end to all this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it one day. It's going to be over with because they're, they're abusing his offerings. How can the offerings of God be any good for the Eli, sons of Eli if they're, they're the ones that are abusing the offerings of God? If they had repented and turned to the Lord in humility, God would have spared them. But as it were, they didn't do that. And so God says, judgment's coming. It's a great thought to know, though, that God will forgive even the vilest of sinners through Christ if we'll come to him. So we should be extremely grateful for for that. But the book of Hebrews has a stern warning for those who refuse to repent and turn to Christ, who keep on sinning. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, it says, If we go on sinning, we just keep on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, you know the truth, you've heard it, yet you keep on sinning, rejecting Christ, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, set aside the word of God, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, you're rejecting him again and again, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. You've insulted God by rejecting him repeatedly. And so you have this stern warning from the book of Hebrews. The son of the sons of Eli had adequate, plenty of exposure to the truth. They knew who God was. They knew what the truth was, but they deliberately rejected it. And God says, okay, there's not going to be any atonement for those guys anymore. I'm calling. That's the end of it. So Samuel gets his first prophetic assignment. Young man, teenager, 12 years old if you're Josephus. And it's going to be a great challenge for him. But thirdly, the return to divine revelation involves Samuel revealing the word of God to people. Samuel revealing the word of God to people. He speaks to two different groups of people. First of all, he speaks to Eli. That's in verses 15 to 18. Verse 15 says, So Samuel lay down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, Here I am. Verses used, phrases used quite a bit in here. He said, What is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if he hide anything from me of all the words that, I, that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And, and, and Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Samuel carries out his normal duties. The next day he gets up in the morning, a little short while after he gets his message probably, gets up out, out of bed, goes about his duties. He's trying to ignore the bad news he's been given. He's not telling anybody anything. He's not telling Eli anything at all. And verse 15 gives the reason. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. He was afraid. Now, this is the first prophetic assignment Samuel's being given. He's, very, he's a young man. It's only natural for him to be afraid, Never, not to mention the fact that Eli is his teacher. And he's got a harsh message to deliver his teacher to his teacher, and he's the one to do it. Think of your... Uh, maybe a teacher you've had that, you know, tutored you and, and taught you and, and all that, and then you've got to tell them some really bad news. And that's what's going on here. And one of the occupational hazards for a prophet or any spokesperson for the Lord is that they've got to tell the truth to people, the truth of God's Word. And truth is not popular, and people don't want to hear it. People might get upset with you. Mike told me this yesterday. He had to talk to the people at the funeral uh, Saturday, or Friday, I think it was, and, you know... You've got to tell the truth to people. These people were unsaved at this funeral. And especially if the truth concerning sin and judgment, you've got to tell them that. And What's the temptation? To be crippled by fear, right? To, to say to yourself, I'm not going to say anything because if I say something, the people will get upset. I won't be popular anymore with them. They won't like me anymore. I'll lose a friend, perhaps. What do we do with that, that fear? I think the best thing to do is to pray for boldness, like they did in Acts. To pray for boldness. We don't just dig deep for inner strength and say, come on, we can man up and do something about this. Well, once again, we depend upon the Lord, right, like we always do, and so we pray for boldness, and I think God will answer that prayer to give us boldness to speak his word. However, in Samuel's case, he was threatened by Eli. <laughs> he was threatened by him. In verse 17, what's happening here is God is calling down, uh, Eli is calling down a curse upon Samuel if Samuel doesn't tell him everything. He's threatening to curse him. It's funny because Eli is asking God to curse Samuel, whom God has no intentions of cursing, uh, if he withholds information he received from the Lord. And yet, 
and Eli is wishing for the same judgment to fall upon Samuel that's going to fall upon him. An even greater judgment if Samuel doesn't tell him the, the whole story that God told him. That's irrational behavior on his part. Maybe telling us something more about Eli. Not only that, though, Eli knew he was under the judgment of God already from chapter 2 because of the unnamed man of God that came to him. It doesn't say that guy was a prophet either. It just said he's a man of God. And, and so, and I think he suspected that there was bad news from Samuel about to, ha- about to hear, you know, reach the ears of Eli. And so in the end, what could Eli do? He had to resign himself to the, what God wanted. He can't fight against God. So Samuel speaks to Eli. And then Samuel speaks to the nation, verse 19. <clears throat> Samuel grew. Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. All Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again to, uh, at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And so you can, you can see he's speaking to the whole nation now. Um, <clears throat> and that's what he does. He continues to grow spiritually, socially, physically, just like it said in chapter 2. In every way he's growing. I think the emphasis here in verse 19 is on his spiritual growth, though. He's growing spiritually strong in the Lord, his spiritual progress. You know, a prophet can't just, he doesn't just get messages from God and spit them out left and right. He's got to be growing in the Lord also. That's part of what he does. He's got to grow in the Lord and and he's got to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord as we also are to do. And if we're not growing in the Lord, we're probably not going to be a spokesman for the Lord very long, are we? It doesn't just happen automatically. But Samuel here is being validated as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord's with him, it says. The Lord is with him. That's always an indication that the fact that the Lord is blessing an individual, by the way. You saw it in the life of Joseph, the Lord is with him in other lives. It's always an indication that God is blessing an individual, that God is guiding an individual. And so Samuel is being validated as to being a prophet of the Lord. He's not left to himself or his own resources. The Lord is raising him up. Now, I've always loved the next phrase in verse 19. God let none of his words fail or literally, I like the translation, God let none of his words fall to the ground. That's what it is literally. A word that falls to the ground is one that bears no fruit. It's a word that has nothing to back it up. But when Samuel spoke, he spoke the Lord's message, and God confirmed that message. And God would fulfill that message, and God backed that message. And the Lord brought it to pass. And it says that everybody in Israel knew that Samuel was the Lord's prophet, all the way from Dan to Beersheba. In other words, all the way from the northernmost point of Israel to the southernmost point of Israel, basically, everybody in Israel, north to south, knew that Samuel was going to be a prophet of God. They knew he was established to be a prophet of God. Verse 21 leads us to believe that, that God continued to give him revelation on a regular basis at Shiloh, this house of God at Shiloh. For years, there had been a disaster, spiritual disaster at Shiloh. But now you have the revelation of God being given because you have the dawning of a new age in which the Lord of God is being revealed again after the time of absence, after a time of scarcity of the word. Israel's not out of the word of woods yet, but, but now they have access to the word of God again. And there's one final thought here. <clears throat> Ignore the chapter division, verse 4, and go on to the next. The first sentence of chapter 4 is, is with that unit of thought that we've been doing in chapter 3. It says, thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And, and what the point here is that the, the word that came to Samuel did not stay in his private possession. He didn't keep it to himself. He gave the word out to all Israel. 
This faithful young apprentice of Eli is now becoming the faithful prophet of God. And he's not, he's not holding back now. He's giving out the word of God to the entire nation. You know, there have always been times in history when the lights have gone out spiritually. Many times you can think of in history when there's been times of spiritual darkness. The world's always been naturally a place of spiritual darkness anyway. But sometimes the people of God need a spiritual awakening, don't we? So you have the great awakenings that took place in the early part of the country. Maybe your attitude toward the Word of God tonight has grown cold. Maybe you're, it's, you're sitting here smiling at me, but maybe your attitude has grown cold, and maybe you're indifferent to the things of God. Maybe you've neglected your time, private time in the Word of God every day. Maybe you don't even have a private time in the Word of God every day. Maybe it's taken on a lesser priority than it used to have. Maybe we've taken it for granted that we have easy access to the Scriptures and we've kind of ignored them and taken taken them for granted. Maybe that's where you're at tonight. Maybe you're not getting out the Word of God to anyone in your sphere of influence. You have people that you could talk to or witness to or that you come across and we're not taking advantage of that. We're not getting the Word of God out. You know, the proclamation of the Word of God is the only thing that's going to bring light to the city of Tampa. The city of Tampa is in spiritual darkness if they don't know Christ, the people that don't know him are in spiritual darkness. And so the light of God's word has got to come to them because that's the only thing that's going to dispel the spiritual darkness in this city or any other city. So let's be like Samuel. Let's take God's word in our lives and take it in and then let's give it out to others. And let's pray that God will use his word to take people out of darkness into the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's do that tonight. Let's not take God's word for granted, this precious possession that he's given us. Let's not take it for granted. But let's cultivate the scriptures. Let's cultivate our love for the scriptures and be grateful for what God has given us in his word. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight and for the time we have in it. We just pray that we'll be appreciative of what we have in our possession and realize the value of what we have in your scriptures. And not only that, we pray we would take it in on a daily basis and, and that we would develop a love for your word. And not only that, we pray we'd get the word out to others that need to hear it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.